Brothers and sisters, welcome to the Christian Fishers of Men podcast. Boy, it feels good to say that again. I am your host, Alan, and it has been a minute. It's been a minute. I had to take some time off, and I had to uh, I had to learn some new skills for work. So I had to do a lot of online courses and stuff like that to get myself up to par to where I needed to be. I have training as a graphic designer, um, so I've been able to design and do some things like that for about 10 years, and, and I, you know, magazines, I can do books, I can do all sorts of fun stuff like that, pop-up banners and stuff. I've designed websites, but now I can actually build the websites using code, using the HTML, CSS, JavaScript, uh, PHP, so... I got some more arrows in my quiver, but I am happy to be back. It's good to be back, and I have felt the need to be back. Um, a lot of stuff going on in the world, a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of things that are happening right now. Um, especially in the church like there's definitely the, the sifting is taking place brothers and sisters and i actually have recorded a couple other episodes but i didn't feel um i didn't feel the spirit smiling upon those episodes it just wasn't happening yet and so i had to remember that this isn't what i would want to to put forth necessarily you know this is um the approach that needs to happen is the approach of what what is the, what would be the most benefit to my brothers and sisters what is what can i do what what is my responsibility as an ephraimite to share and so i've i've taken those episodes and i've tabled them for now um and i'm going to actually start my my comeback here um I want to I want to hit the Book of Mormon and I want to tackle it chapter by chapter not just reading it because you can get that on the uh, on the uh, the church's website on their their app for Android and and Apple and stuff like that you can have it read to you by a professional you know that's not what this is about we're going to do a deep dive into the doctrine, into the history, I think, um, as much as we can. We're going to do a deep dive into just some of the cool things that you can, anybody can do this. And I want to demonstrate that here because I'm not a genius. You know what I mean? I'm really not. Um, I do have a love for the scriptures, especially the historical part of it. And when you understand a lot of the historical aspects of the scriptures, Everything else kind of comes into play, and you will have a really cool understanding. And so I wanted to take, and I wanted to share the Book of Mormon um, in, in my way. And in a way that I think would be beneficial to, to people, to my brothers and sisters, and to be able to kind of get back into the swing of things, and to really share something that is extraordinarily important in my life. I love the Book of Mormon. I 
I, you know, like, like I say, I'm, I'm nothing special at all. But something I have done is I have discovered the importance of the Book of Mormon, and I've discovered the power of it. And, you know, it, it's cool because the Book of Mormon is something, like, everybody, all of Christendom thinks that we place it above the Bible, and, and that's not the case. That's not the case. Those two books are meant to be hand in hand. Uh, Ezekiel talks about that. The stick of, of Ephraim and the stick of, of Judah, right? They're supposed to become one in your hand. It's not that we put the Book of Mormon above any, any other scripture. It's not. The whole point of the Book of Mormon, you see, the Bible is the common ground, right? That's the common ground. We all should have that common ground, unless you're, you're not uh, Christian at all, right? But to everybody else, especially when the Book of Mormon was released, uh, when it was first translated, everybody understood their Bible. They knew their Bible. They knew the historical aspects of the Bible. The Book of Mormon was meant to be something that is a new, it's, an, it's another testament, right? This is a new book of, of scripture, a collection of books. And it's cool because it's from a different part of the world, the other side of the of the hemisphere, right? Now, as I said, we don't place it above the Bible at all. You you have to know your Bible to truly know your Book of Mormon, okay? So before I get into into reading the first chapter, I want to do a quick little a quick little um, exploration of, of where we're at in history when Nephi um, and Lehi are getting ready to, you know, when, when Lehi is told to take his family into the wilderness, what was happening in, in Jerusalem and in the kingdom of Judah at that time, what had happened previous to that. So let's go ahead and let's get started here. So we are... We're here talking about First Nephi, uh, chapter 1. We're looking at about 600 B.C., okay? So, about at 600 B.C., what had happened previous to this is that we have the northern kingdom of Israel had split off, right, from the main body. And so... Israel has been split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, right? Basically because of, of taxes and, and political, you know, dissension and stuff like that, you, you have that split. And so, previous to the kingdom of Judah, um, as we know, ultimately getting taken over by Babylon, right? Assyria was the dominant superpower, and they actually came in and took out the northern kingdom of Israel and scattered. That's where the scattering of the lost ten tribes comes from, okay? And this happened at or around about 800 BC, okay? So 200 years prior to the events of the starting of the Book of Mormon with Lehi and his family, the northern kingdom of Israel has been completely decimated and taken over. 
they had a chance to repent, just like anybody else, right? They, they had the chance to return, but they had turned to, to pagan gods. They had turned to rebelling against, against the great Jehovah, and as a result, they were given over to, to their enemies. Um, the kingdom of Israel... The kingdom of Israel ultimately wound up falling. They, they ultimately wound up not doing what they were supposed to do, and they, you know, they, they took a hit, and they were able to re repel Israel the, the first time. And there's a whole lot of connections there between us and between Israel, between America and be between the northern kingdom of Israel. Really, really cool stuff. If you guys read anything by Jonathan Kahn, you'll see some really cool similarities. And I don't put that forth as scripture. I put that forth as interesting stuff to check out. So we're going to make that distinction here. Um, really, really cool similarities between 9-11 and what happened with the Northern Kingdom of Israel as a warning, right? Uh, check out the book the, the Harbinger by Jonathan Kahn. Really, really good stuff. So, 200 years go by, and the southern kingdom of Judah is, it, it's their turn, basically. So, as I say, it's their turn. Basically, what had happened was Assyria had, at, you know, they took over the northern kingdom. They were the superpower. Well, now it was Babylon's turn. And just a quick little recap on those two kingdoms, they actually occupied the same original kingdom, a bigger original kingdom, that Nimrod had actually set up, right? So Nimrod had set up his kingdom. He, he had actually um, encompassed both of those areas. He had a big, huge area that he encompassed in, in modern-day Iraq between the, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers was where he built his, um, like where he started out his stuff. And as we know, he built a big old huge tower, right? Built a tower um, to try to, to, to reach to heaven to make a name for themselves and to get around God. And he, it, it's really interesting, and that's going to probably be an episode all on its own, going into Nimrod and, and the stuff that he did, the kingdom that he set up. But basically, it was, it was complete opposition to not only God, but the chosen people of God, the, the kingdom of God. It was a... It was a rejection of a Messiah, and it was becoming a prophet and a Messiah unto themselves. Nimrod is the originator of all of the pagan stuff, right? All the, all the gods that we have, like the, the, the pantheon of gods that we see, um, all go back. You know, sun worship, everything goes back to Nimrod, and after him dying, him being deified. He actually married his mother, Semiramses, and stuff like that. And there's a whole... I'm, I'm, I'm holding myself back from getting into this stuff because it's so intriguing and it's so cool to understand. <laughs> 
But just so just so we know, for the purposes of this podcast right now, I'm, Alan's reining himself in. The northern kingdom of Assyria, or excuse me, the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken over by Assyria, which at one time was part of the Babylonian Empire under Nimrod, and then Babylon actually came up into power and took out Assyria, and now they are the superpower of the land. And they came in and actually, um, it, it, it took a minute, you know, there was a struggle between Judah and Babylon, and Judah resisted, right? But because they had, they had gone away from the Lord, they were left to their own power, and superpower versus superpower they were not in the same league as babylon babylon was too tough okay they were a huge threat and so during the reign of king uh uh okay his reign began in 609 bc okay so he rules for a couple of years, and then in 605 BC, okay, basically King Nebuchadnezzar was able to come in and he was able to take out, or he was able to take over and dominate the kingdom of Judah, okay? So the kingdom of Judah at 605 BC is under Babylonian rule. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did not immediately come in and just lay waste and just just beat the dog out of the kingdom of Judah yet, okay? The whole point in taking over these kingdoms was to set up these, uh, basically these, these areas where they would pay tribute, right? So that they could fund this expansion, so that they could, ex- that they could fund the 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 building up of the capital uh, you know actual babylon so that they could the entire kingdom basically become wealthy by taking over these areas and having these these places be in servitude to them paying a yearly tribute okay so it wasn't in your it basically would be a waste like if you're coming in and you just level a place then basically it was just a really ex, you know expensive campaign military campaign like you you got to pay for soldiers you got to pay to house them to feed them to train them there's this whole economy behind it and it costs money it costs coin right so if you're going to take an area over if you're able to have them surrender and then agree to pay you a tribute every year you've now got that income right You've got that, that yearly income that you can depend on. So, basically, that that's what happens, right? So, basically what happens is um, Yehuakim refuses to pay tribute. He kind of rebels against, against um, King Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he takes captive uh Yehuakim and his family a bunch of the military people a bunch of the royal uh noble houses and stuff like that he takes them into Babylon right and so 
they exist in Babylon for a while. Uh, Yehoiakim is is a prisoner, but is eventually he he is allowed to come out and eat at the king's table. So, but he is a captive. Okay, he's a he's a captive, along with his his family, his his household, his you know everybody, the the whole royal house, basically, almost all the royal house. So what happens is, basically, Nebuchadnezzar, he quells that rebellion. He takes him captive into, into Babylon, but he then sets up uh, Yehuakim's, um I'm trying not to get too far into this, because I will go down a rabbit hole here. So basically what happens is, Zedekiah is put in charge, okay? King Nebuchadnezzar literally takes uh, Zedekiah and puts him in charge. And uh, Zedekiah actually is not his Hebrew name. It's not his Jew, his Jewish name, right? That was the name that King Nebuchadnezzar gave to him. If we remember, going back to Daniel, Daniel was not what King Nebuchadnezzar called Daniel, right? We, we we have Daniel and his three buddies, basically. And all of them were renamed. You have Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar, right? They were given new names. Okay? The same thing happened with, with Zedekiah. He was given the name of Zedekiah. Okay? So, Zedekiah is set up, and he is he is the, the king... That has is the basically the, the the puppet. Okay, he's the he's the the figurehead that Nebuchadnezzar put into place. He is appointed by King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he is a brother to Yehuakim, right? And he was the, he was the younger brother. He was actually pretty young when he when he was was made king. Okay. But this is what is this is the 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 stage that is set at the time of Lehi and Nephi. Okay, so Judah is already taken over by Babylon. It just hasn't been completely leveled yet. Okay, they were under a tributary. They they had to pay tribute, but. That was something that I didn't understand for a long time. I thought that they were they were their own kingdom, and they were not. They were already under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Hopefully, I, I've I've explained that clearly. I'm having to jump over a lot of stuff here historically, but but that's in a nutshell. That's where we're at. Okay. This could probably all be its podcast all on its own, but I want to get into the Book of Mormon stuff. So, so the stage is set. So Lehi comes into the picture. Okay, we go to the Book of Mormon, and we're at around 600 BC. So King Nebuchadnezzar is well known. The Kingdom of Babylon is well known because they are the masters of Judah at this time. Now. The basically, the whole reason why this is happening is because Judah has gone the same path for about four hundred and ninety years. Okay, 
For about 490 years, Judah has left the way of God. And they had times when they would kind of, you know, kind of come back. There'd be these little religious revivals and stuff. But as a whole, the kingdom had um, rebelled against God over and over and over. And that number, 490, is going to be really interesting as we go forward here. So, let's go into, into the Book of Mormon here. Okay. The stage is set. 600 B.C. King Nebuchadnezzar is basically the, the, the king of the land. He's king of Judah. Judah is like a, a province of Babylon at this point. So let's get into this here, before I get too carried away. <laughs> I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents. Okay. Now, we're going to stop and we're going to pause here quite a bit. Okay. It's interesting because Nephi starts out that way, saying, Here's my name, I'm Nephi, and I was born of goodly parents. Okay. If we go to the Book of Mormon uh, student manual, it gives us a quick little insight into this. It says, In 1995, the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles described the family as central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children. They declared that happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nephi wrote about the family of Lehi and Sariah, his parents. These goodly parents sought to raise and guide their family with the Lord's teachings, even during difficult times. Father Lehi experienced visions of heaven as well as attempts on his life. Family members found safety in fleeing from Jerusalem, only to be sent back to the dangerous and difficult assignment to receive the brass plates. Okay? Faithful sons supported their parents and followed the Lord, while other sons rebelled. Okay, as you read these early Book of Mormon chapters, observe this family's efforts to follow the Lord and see how their example can direct you to do the same. So we're given this, we're, we're given this archetype here for us. It's like, look, and they, they spelled it out for us. You know, what I, it's really cool. Okay, they spelled it out for us. There's a reason why why Nephi is saying that he was born of goodly parents. There's more to it than just the surface value, than saying, yeah, my parents were pretty cool. Okay, these were parents that had brought him up in the ways of Jehovah, okay, in the ways of Christ. He, he knew Moses, he knew the law, he knew all the stuff that they were supposed to do religiously and spiritually. They, he knew his scriptures and stuff like that, okay? Moving on here. Therefore, I was taught... There's that part of that theme again, right? Taught by goodly parents. Therefore, I was taught somewhat in all the learning of my father. And having seen many afflictions in the course of my days, nevertheless, having been highly favored of the Lord in all my days, yea, having had a great knowledge of the goodness and the mysteries of God, therefore I make a record of my proceedings in my days. Okay? Verse 2, 
Yea, I make a record in the language of my Father, which consists of the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians. Okay, now this is interesting. This is interesting. Why? Why would a Jew, why would anybody living in the kingdom of Judah make use of the language of their captors, the Egyptians? Interesting thought, right? If I was captured by another country, you know what I mean? I wouldn't want to, and I got my freedom, I wouldn't want to use their language to record in my journal, right? It's, it's one of those things. It's interesting, okay? Um, if, if we go again to the student manual, and I'm doing this on purpose because if we study the scriptures this way, we're going to get a whole lot out of it, okay? And the student manual is made available to everybody. So, the Book of Mormon student manual indicates that Lehi and Nephi used the language of the Egyptians to record their history onto gold plates. 470 years later, King Benjamin taught his sons the language of the Egyptians, which was not only the language of the gold plates, but the language of the brass plates as well. Okay? That's an important thing to note. That... This, this was not something that they came up with, right? This apparently, at the time, was common practice. Even the, the brass plates, which are at this point in, the, in the, um, the, the, the treasury of Laban, okay, they were written using the same thing. It was as if I took a Greek letters in the Greek alphabet or even some type of, of pictograph language, but I used English as the language, but the sounds were all in the, in the different alphabet or the pictures. Okay? That's basically what they were doing. Hebrew, um, incredibly strong written language, but it takes up a lot of room, whereas the Egyptian hieroglyphics were not like that. Okay? They were able to to make use of a whole lot of real estate on the plates without taking up a ton of room, you could get your thoughts across very, very quickly and easily. So that's an important thing here to understand is that the brass plates also had this same thing, okay? Which uh, brass plates as well? The term Reformed Egyptian only appears in the Book of Mormon in Mormon chapter 9, verse 32. Reformed Egyptian appears to be a term that reflects a variation in the language used by Lehi and Nephi. Okay? In Mormon chapter 9, verses 32 and 33, Moroni indicates, indicated that by his day, approximately a thousand years from the time of Lehi and Nephi, both the Egyptian and Hebrew had been altered from that used by Lehi and Nephi. Okay? That's, that happens. That's just... Go, go go try to read Old English and see if you can if, see if you can understand it right. If you're an English speaker, like you're not going to be able to understand it. It's just how it is. You'll pick out stuff here and there, and if you're reading it, you'll pick out a little bit more. But as a whole, even going back to the William Tyndale Bible, you'll notice a bunch of weird things in there, and it takes you a minute to train your mind into using um, 
into understanding their spelling and the way that they say things. It's, it's just how it is. It's actually kind of fun uh, thought experiment to do. Okay, so along with that, I know, I know, we're only two, two verses in here, okay? And we're already taking up all this time. But this is, this is important stuff to understand that's going to kind of make this stuff come alive for you, okay? I'm going to ask you a question, and let's see if you know the answer. What was the book of Daniel in the Old Testament written in? Was it written in Hebrew only? There's a clue. It was written in Hebrew, but what was the other language that it was written in? What was the language of the of the Babylonians? So Daniel comes. Daniel was probably alive. Um, he, well, he was alive. He's he's a contemporary with Nephi. Okay. So Daniel is around during this time. What did he write his book in? Aramaic. That's the language of the Babylonians. Okay? This is not unheard of stuff, guys. This is not unheard of to write, you know, to, to make use of somebody else's alphabet and stuff to be able to record your stuff. It's just, it's one of those things, you know what I mean? It, it happens, okay? It's nothing unheard of. Okay, moving on. Just wanted to make that point there real quick. And I know that the record which I make is true, and I make it with mine own hand, and make it according to my knowledge. For it came to pass in the commencement of the first year, okay, the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Interesting, he's using the name that um, Nebuchadnezzar had given him, okay? That shouldn't just go, don't sleep on that fact, okay? This is a fact that Nephi is calling their king by the Babylonian name, okay? Because they were under the Babylonian rule at this time. My father Lehi, having dwelt at Jerusalem in all his days, and in that same year there came many prophets prophesying, unto the people that they must repent or the great city of Jerusalem must be destroyed. Okay. This is cool because if you go back to Jeremiah, you're going to see a second witness of, a, of what's happening here. Okay. You're, we have Lehi in the account of Lehi. Okay. Abridged, obviously, by his son Nephi. But we have Lehi who is saying here the same things that Jeremiah is saying, right? When he begins his preaching and stuff to the people, Jeremiah is saying the same exact thing. And Jeremiah even says that there came many prophets as well, prophesying to the people. This is the one last call for alcohol. You know what I mean? <laughs> to use that popular song, okay? This is the I have been extraordinarily patient with you guys. I have kept you alive up until the minute that, that I, you know, the very, very last minute that I can. And I'm going to send prophets out one more time to tell you guys that I want you to repent. I don't want to allow this to happen. What's about to happen, I don't want to allow it to happen. Okay? Now, the people... 
in in the kingdom of Judah, we're talking about Jerusalem here. This is the the holy city, right? There's no way the Lord would allow this to be taken out. Like, there's no way, right? It talks about them having stiff necks and stuff like that, about being extremely stubborn, about being extremely set in their ways, except for when it came to the religious stuff, right? (laughs) So, very, very, very prideful people here. And there's no, in their mind, they thought there's no way that the city of David here, that, you know what I mean, that that the temple of Solomon is going to be destroyed. There's no way. Can't happen, right? That That's kind of the attitude of the people at the time. They're thinking, no way Jerusalem can be taken out. No way God would allow his temple, which was built by Solomon, which is gorgeous and spared no expense and has the very, very best of everything put together, is going to be taken out. There's no way, okay? Wherefore, verse 5, Wherefore it came to pass that my father Lehi, as he went forth, prayed unto the Lord, yea, even with all his heart in behalf of his people. So Lehi, we see here, is a sober dude. Okay? Lehi is one who, he was obviously studying the scriptures. And it, he, he was close to the spirit, and he was a prophet, okay? I've heard a lot of people put forth the idea that Lehi is just, he was just a dad. I reject that completely. Um, Lehi was a prophet, and it just said so here in the account of Nephi in these first couple of verses. Lehi was also a prophet, okay? Now, something important is that these guys were studying the scriptures. They would have gone to Isaiah. They would have looked over all this stuff. Isaiah was obviously super popular with Nephi and stuff. But they understood what it was like, right, before the northern kingdom got taken out. They understood all the warnings that they got and stuff. And they also understood, through the spirit of revelation, what was about to happen to them, okay? So you can see why these guys, these prophets, these guys were shown what was about to happen. And if you go back historically to see what happened, it was brutal, brutal. Women, children, the suffering that they endured was incredible. And it it was very sad to have to think about. One of those things where that would be an extremely hard burden to have on your shoulders. And you can see the desperation in Lehi as he goes forth and starts to and starts to relay a message to the people, right? Um Jeremiah actually, if you go back and read Jeremiah, you'll see the same thing. Like he he just it's captured so well with Jeremiah. If you want to see what was going on in Lehi's mind, go read Jeremiah. And very, very powerful. I'm I'm holding myself back here, but Verse 6, And it came to pass, as he prayed unto the Lord, there came a pillar of fire, okay, a pillar of fire, and dwelt upon a rock before him. 
and he saw and heard much, and because of the things which he saw and heard, he did quake and tremble exceedingly. Okay. We're going to see throughout the book of Nephi here, there's some really cool parallels with Exodus and Moses and stuff like that, okay? So, in talking about this, this pillar of fire, okay, the Hebrew word that they use for, for pillar is amud, okay? And it means a pillar or a column. And you say, okay, yeah, it told us that in the verse. Why, why are you making a big deal out of that? Well, what is a pillar? What is a pillar? You go to the dictionary. I like to go to the uh, Webster's Dictionary of 1828 because the Book of Mormon was was written close to that time. So the, the words that we're getting here are 1800s words. And I like to look up the, the definitions from that time because I think it gives us a really great insight into what is what is being said and what is happening here. So meaning of a, of a pillar or a column. Okay, so what what is a pillar according to the 1828 dictionary, Webster's dictionary? Okay, something shaped like a pillar, a pillar of smoke, a per person or thing regarded as reliably providing essential support for something. And it gives us the example, he was a pillar of his local community, okay? Now, Understanding that, okay, understanding that and understanding we can't just read and gloss over this stuff. you got to dig into it. So notice something that the pillar of fire rested upon what? It rested upon a rock, okay? So this pillar, and if we go back to Exodus and we, we look through Exodus, we understand that the Lord... It says that the Lord, he would dwell inside the pillar, okay? The Lord was, he, he was like the pillar, okay? So understanding that, and that this pillar, it comes and it sits on top of a rock. If you look up the Hebrew words for, for that they can use for rocks, okay? You, you'll get two words, uh, sor and sela. And I'm probably butchering these pronunciations, but sor and sela. Okay, it, it indicates firmness, stability, and faithfulness. So we're getting some really symbolic stuff here, guys, that you shouldn't sleep on. Okay, the pillar comes, which is reliably providing essential support for, you know, this is, this is Jehovah, okay? And it's resting upon a rock, which indicates firmness, stability, and faithfulness, okay? Really cool. Really cool little little thing that if you weren't paying attention, you would just throw away and not think about, okay? Then we come here and it says, it says that because of the things that he saw and heard, he did quake and tremble exceedingly, okay? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? As I, as I have already stated, seeing and understanding what was about to happen to your nation. The horrors that were about to happen, right? It's pretty incredible. It's, it's like it would cause you to shake if you were to witness 
what happened here. I, I'm going to share something with you, not to take away from the spirit at all, but I, I just, I'm sure that there were great things as well, but I'm sure that there was some, some sobering, violent things that he saw as well that caused him to quake and tremble exceedingly. When I was in the military, uh, we were shown the decapitation of a soldier and the effect that it had on pretty much most of us soldiers there was that we shook. It caused us to shake. You know, what we witnessed was, was obviously gruesome, and, and, and it, it's, it's a very unnatural thing to see somebody get murdered, right? And it, it, it caused me, for sure, to shake. I trembled, literally. Like, I wasn't... Like, I'm not saying I, have, I was having a seizure, but I, I was shaking after I saw that. It was brutal. Okay, and I, 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 you know, I, I look at what Lehi must have seen, and I think that is probably baby food and child's play to what Lehi saw happen. Okay, don't want to dwell on that too much, but just, just putting that out there so we understand. Okay, verse seven, and it came to pass that he returned to his own house at Jerusalem, and he cast himself upon his bed, being overcome with the spirit and the things which he had seen. Okay, this is something that is a constant throughout scripture, throughout modern day stuff. Like, whenever there is a vision that is had, for some reason, it has a physical effect that wipes you out and you have to basically go pass out for a while okay um if you look at the at the footnote here always look at the footnotes guys always look at the footnotes if you go to where it talks about him being overcome okay footnote a on seven it takes us to daniel and it says and the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true wherefore Shut up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days afterward. I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Okay, So Daniel, who was probably very used to having visions, okay, he fainted. He, it, it, took, it physically took a toll on him, okay, just like it did here with Lehi. It takes a toll when you receive a divine vision like that. Same thing happened to Joseph Smith. It wears you out, right? You have to sleep it off for a while after you have something like that, okay? Uh, going to verse 8. And thus, and being thus overcome with the Spirit, he was carried away in a vision even that he saw the heavens open, and he thought he saw God sitting upon his throne, surrounded with numberless concourses of angels in the attitude of singing and praising their God. Okay. So, here we're going to have some parallels, obviously. It's the gospel, right? And the, it's kind of how things happen in the gospel. You, you get a lot of parallels. So, specifically here, I want to point out a parallel with Isaiah. Okay, so we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll do verses 1 through 5 here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. 
above it. So, okay, so I'm not talking about a choo-choo train here, just, just so everybody knows, right? We're talking about the hem of his garment or the skirts thereof, okay? You can click on that footnote, it'll tell you exactly what that means. His train filled the temple. The hem of his garment or the skirts thereof. There's symbolism there, but I'm not going to go into it right now. Above it stood the seraphims. Uh, seraphim, as we know from modern day revelation, is a is a uh, degree of angel type thing, okay? You have seraphims, you have cherubims, and you have archangels, basically, okay? So, I don't, and I don't know how you get from one to the other or anything about that, but I do know that there are different degrees of angels. You know, there, there are those three separate ones. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings with twain. He covered his face. That means two of them covered his face. And with twain, or two, he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. Okay? And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Says it three times. Symbolic. Look it up is the Lord of hosts. Okay, pause again. Whenever you see Lord all capitalized like that, that is the the um, original translators didn't want to say Jehovah or Yahweh out of respect for not taking his name, um, for not saying it too often and stuff like that. So in your mind, just remember that in the original, in the original stuff, when it says... Lord, when it's translated as Lord in English, all caps, that's Jehovah, okay? So, holy, holy, holy is Jehovah, okay? Jehovah, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King. The Lord of hosts. Okay. Isaiah has seen the king, Jehovah, the Lord of hosts. Okay. Super powerful and, and super, super parallels Isaiah here with what we're seeing um, with Lehi at this point. Like it's, it's, do you guys catch the spirit of this stuff? How deep and powerful this is? Like it's really, really cool. When you start getting into this here, okay? So, Lehi sees God sitting upon his throne with numberless concourses of angels in the attitude of singing and praising their God. If we go to Isaiah and read that, then you get like an, a, an extra little bit of a window into what it must have been like and what was going through Lehi's mind as well. If Isaiah was feeling that, you know Lehi was feeling that same thing, Okay? Now, this part is really, really cool here, as we go to verse 9. And it came to pass that he saw one descending out of the midst of heaven, and he beheld that his luster was above that of the noon or of the sun at noonday. Okay. You get a parallel here with Joseph Smith in the first vision. Okay. And he also saw twelve others following him, and their brightness did exceed that of the stars in the firmament. Okay? We're looking at Jehovah and the twelve. Okay? And they came down 
and they came down. Okay, there's a clue there. And they came down and went forth upon the face of the earth. And the first came and stood before my father and gave unto him a book and bade him that he should read. Okay. Now, very symbolic, guys. Whenever you see in Scripture, you'll see this in the Old Testament quite a bit. Okay. Whenever somebody has a vision and they are given a book, there is extreme symbolism here. Okay. If you go to Strong's Concordance and look up um, book, it's like, like in dealing with the Hebrew stuff, if you look up book, a book typically had to do with a scroll as well. Like you can use those two. Basically, you can use them interchangeably, okay? But a lot of times, they're given a scroll, which is a part of a book and stuff like that. And it's, obviously, they didn't have books like we do. They had scrolls and stuff, okay? So, just understand that, okay? For us, in the Book of Mormon here, he's saying that he gave him a book. In the original Hebrew, I would be very surprised if it didn't come out to him giving him a scroll, Okay? Because that's how it it was done in the Old Testament a lot of times, but for our our Western mindset, we understand a book way better than we understand a scroll. Okay, so in any case, it doesn't change the idea being being presented here. But he gives him a book and he tells him to read it. Okay, so again, going back to Strong's Concordance, when we look at that. The meaning is a letter of instruction, a written order, a commission or request, usually from a king. When we look at scroll, okay? Also, reading of the book aloud is an, it's, a, it's an Israel, it's a custom of Israel, right? And followed by covenant with Moses after publicly reading the law or the, or the Torah, Okay? So this is, we're seeing patterns here. We're seeing patterns and we're seeing symbolism here that he's being asked to read something. So he's being asked to read something out loud, okay? And as he does so, he would understand by implication that as Jehovah is the one giving this to him, that this is law, that this is a written order of instruction to him and it was to, meant to be taken as law, okay? Um, quick little side note, or not side note, but extra, extra thing here in Exodus 24, verse 7. And he took the book of the, a covenant and bread in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord hath said, will we do and be obedient. Okay. So we see here. That just kind of helps illustrate the point of what's happening. Like, there's always something deeper than, than surface level here when we're looking at this stuff. Really, really cool. So as Lehi is is reading this book, okay. He's been he's being given a written order or a commission, okay, as a prophet. Okay, verse twelve. And it came to pass that as he read, he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Okay. Now, as we, as we on earth know, 
we have to eat. We have to consume food in order to live, right? We also have to consume things to feed our spirit. We have to consume things to feed our, our brain, right? There's those three pillars of, of what make up a person, pretty much. And it's cool to think about, like, as I was reading this, I was like, this is what happens when you read the scriptures, really. You know what I mean? When you consume the scriptures, all that means is that you're reading the scriptures and you're studying the scriptures. And when you do that, you will be filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Okay? In the case of Jeremiah, just to illustrate my point further, Jeremiah was commanded to actually eat the scroll in his vision. He was told, hey, eat it. Okay? It's, it's very symbolic. And the symbolism there is to consume it, to make it a part of yourself. Okay? So Lehi does that. Now, he, was, he didn't eat it like Jeremiah did, okay? But Jeremiah said that when he ate it, it was sweet. It was like honey. It was sweet, okay? And it did the same thing for Jeremiah. It filled him with the Spirit of the Lord. So Lehi is filled with the Spirit of the Lord after consuming this, after, after taking this, this mission and being obedient. He takes it and he mentally consumes it and he reads it. Okay. And as he read, saying, Woe, woe unto Jerusalem! For I have seen thine abominations, yea, and many things did my father read concerning Jerusalem that it should be destroyed, and the inhabitants thereof. Many should perish by the sword, and many should be carried away captive into Babylon. Okay? So he is shown specifically, and he is given specifically the warning. Okay? This is, this is what you're going to be telling people right here. Here's the divine decree. Okay? The words of the Lord. <laughs> it's just... There's power here, guys. If you get into the spirit and you're reading this stuff, you can you can feel it. Like, it's just as potent now, today, as it was in 600 B.C., or about 600 B.C., when this was, was decreed, right? Really cool stuff. When we don't accept the Lord or the Atonement, this is the decree. That, that we will get after many, many, many mulligans, right? This is what we get right here. And this, I think, applies to America today. And I think that's why we're getting this. We're getting this. We're getting dropped into history, into the Book of Mormon at a specific time for a reason, guys. There's a reason why it's happening right now. Okay, really, really good stuff. Moving on here. And it came to pass that when my father had read, or sorry, we're on, we're on, uh, we're on verse 14. And it came to pass that when my father had read and seen many great marvelous things, he did exclaim many things unto the Lord, such as, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. Thy throne is high in the heavens, and thy power and goodness and mercy are over all the inhabitants of the earth, and because thou art merciful, thou wilt not suffer those who come unto thee, that they shall perish. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting to read this because 
if I was shown a vision of what Lehi just saw from the previous vision and then this one being specifically given a commission and a warning to give to the people, like, understanding what was about to happen, can you imagine the gratitude you would have in your heart that all you have to do is come back into the fold and everything will be okay? You know what I mean? I would be praising God too. I'd be saying, thank you so much for giving us another chance. For giving us this last chance. Okay? Because those things that I saw are horrible. And it does not look good. And I want nothing to do with it. So, yeah, I'd be singing, I'd be singing the, the praises of Jehovah as well. You know what I mean? Like, obviously we should anyway, but especially after he gives you a personal commission to go and to give him one last chance. Okay? Just, just interesting insight there. Verse 15. And after this manner was the language of my father and the praising of his God, for his soul did rejoice, and his whole heart was filled because of the things which he had seen, yea, which the Lord had shown unto him. Okay, that's... That's like the, 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 the rejoice of hope. That, that's what I get out of that. Like there, there was hope here. Because remember, he hasn't gone out yet. So he's filled with hope. And he's rejoicing in the fact that, oh my gosh, we're, if, if we just come back, we'll be okay. Okay. Verse 16. And now I, Nephi, do not make a full account of the things which my father hath written. Pause. I, I wish I wish we had that. <laughs> I wish we could see all, or read all that. Okay, for he hath written many things which he saw in visions and in dreams. Okay. Pause. Just so we understand, um, if if you go back to the Book of Mormon student manual here, Nephi wrote his record about thirty years after Lehi's family left Jerusalem and journeyed to the Promised Land. Okay. The record begins with an abridgment of his father's record comprising 1 Nephi 1 through 8. Okay, so that's what's happening right now is we're getting an abridgment of Lehi's stuff. Okay, now some of you are in your mind, you're probably thinking, oh, wait a second, 116 manuscript pages, right? That, that was Lehi's stuff. You're right. You're exactly right. Okay. Mormon's abridgment of Lehi's record was in the lost 116 manuscript pages. Okay. It was a translation from a portion of the plates called the Book of Lehi. Okay. So anyone that's having those thoughts, you're exactly right. Those, the, the abridgment that Mormon made of Lehi's stuff was actually lost. And luckily, Nephi had been inspired to make an abridgment of his dad's stuff as well. So Nephi had an abridgment. Mormon had an abridgment. We lost Mormon's abridgment, which was the 116 pages uh, the, the lost manuscript pages. Gosh, that'd be cool to see that. Just for fun to see what was in that. Okay. Also, I want to point out, if you go back to the Webster's Dictionary of 1828 again, if you look up dream, okay, in the second explanation, in Scripture, dreams were sometimes impressions on the minds of sleeping persons made by divine agency. God came to Ablamech in a dream. Joseph was warned by God in a dream. Okay. 
just kind of interesting thing there that he says that he had visions and dreams. Okay? Interesting that he would delineate between the two, that there were visions, and you think to yourself, well, isn't a vision and a dream the same thing? It's not. Okay? It's not. I just gave you the explanation for, for a dream. Okay? But a vision is, is a little bit different. Okay? And I want you guys to look that up as well. I want you to look up the difference between the two. That's your homework. Okay? I'm not going to give you everything. <laughs> I'm just going to... I'm going to give you a lot here. Okay? But understand that visions and dreams are not... They're not necessary. You, you, you wouldn't use one instead of the other. Right? There's a difference. And look, look it up. Okay? And he also hath written many things, which he prophesied and spake unto his children, of which I shall not make a full account. Okay. But I shall make an account of my proceedings in my days. Behold, I make an abridgment of the record of my father, upon plates, which I have made with my own hands. Wherefore, after I have abridged the record of my father, then will I make an account of mine own life. Again, super cool to see that Nephi did that. Because without that, like, can you can you imagine? Can you imagine not having having this having this account of what happened? Like Nephi made a backup. You know what I mean? Like when you have your hard drive and you have some important documents, Nephi had the backup because the one that Mormon had made got got corrupted. <laughs> That's exactly what happened, okay? Moving on, verse 18, Therefore I would that you should know that after the Lord had shown so many marvelous things unto my father Lehi, yea, concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, behold, he went forth among the people and began to prophesy. He's fulfilling his divine commission that was given to him in symbolism with that book. Okay, The book being given to him and him being told to read, this is the commission right now. He's prophesying. Okay? Uh, and to declare unto them concerning the things which he had both seen and heard. And it came to pass that the Jews did mock him because of the things which he testified of them. Okay. So, again, I'm going to draw some parallels between Lehi and Jeremiah. Okay. And when you go to the when you go to the student manual, it'll do this a lot for you as well. It's really cool. It talks about the, the weight of God's words, uh, the, the great stress, the, prof, the prophetic calling caused Jeremiah is particularly discernible in Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 through 8, and verses 14 through 18. The Hebrew word translated in verse 7 as deceived means literally enticed or persuaded, okay? So if we go to verse 7 in Jeremiah 20, it says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. Okay. So you can see there, you can see there like, Obviously, that, that word deceived is, is weird for him to say, okay? But that, that's not what he's saying there. But you get that, you, you, get, you get this feeling, 
okay? You get this feeling there that as he is saying, you know, Lord, you've, you've persuaded me to go ahead and do this prophetic calling, and he's having the same exact thing happen to him that Lehi is experiencing. Like, he's getting mocked because of this stuff, right? Um, I'll do, yeah, I'll go ahead and do verses 14 through 18 in Jeremiah really quick, just so we get that, just so we get that same, that same feel. If my computer will stop doing that. There we go. Okay. Um, come on, open up the right link. Here we go. Okay. Verses 14 through 18 in Jeremiah 20. Cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bear me be blessed. So he's, we're getting, we're getting a mind into how difficult this was for Jeremiah. Okay. Where he's like, gosh, dang it. You know, he's getting down on, on himself and stuff. Gonna be in an Eeyore right now. Understandably so. Uh, Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man-child is born unto thee, making him very glad. And let the, that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not. And let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontide. Because he slew me not from the womb, or that my mother might have been my grave, and her womb to be always great with me. Wherefore... Came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow, that my days should be consumed with shame? Okay. Jeremiah wasn't in a good place mentally right there. But, we see here, um, oh, where I lost my spot. Okay. The power that persuaded the prophet to continue to preach God's words at such great personal cost was as a burning fire shut up in his bones. It could not be stayed. Um, verses 14 through 18, the ones we just read, reflect Jeremiah's despair over the lonely ministry he was given. Some scholars believe these verses originally were meant to precede verses 7 through 13 because the tenor of the lament changes in verses 11 through 13, in which Jeremiah began to praise the Lord. Okay, so I like to read the Jeremiah stuff because it gives us a window into what was going through Lehi's mind as well. Like, these guys were contemporaries. You know what I mean? And understanding, you know, we, we get that really well in Jeremiah, where he understood what he was telling them. Like, guys, the sword, famine. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, all this stuff that I'm telling you about, it was weighing on him, and it must have weighed on Lehi as well. Okay, even though Lehi, you know, and and Jeremiah both are praising God and stuff like that, there's that hope. But once that that mocking comes, and once you realize that they're not going to accept this message, that must have been a huge mental blow to both of them, and the weight of knowing what was going to happen, and that they these people won't listen to you. It's it's like. It's like a bunch of people sitting in fr on a train track, and you're seeing a train coming, and you're screaming at them to get off the tracks. And there's nothing you can do except for using your voice to, to warn them. And they're just laughing at you. 
They're laughing at you. Can you imagine that? That's what, that's what he's experiencing. Like, gosh, dang, that just, I mean, it really makes you think, doesn't it? Uh, going back again to verse 19, And it came to pass that the Jews did mock him because of the things which he testified of them, for he truly testified of their wickedness and their abominations. 490 years worth of wickedness and abominations, I'd like to add. And he testified that the things which he saw and heard, and also the things which he read in the book, manifested plainly of the coming of a Messiah, and also the redemption of the world. So, it seems to me that Satan works extremely hard and overtime when it comes to prophecy about a coming Messiah. Like, he worked really hard. So much so that apparently 600 years before the birth of Christ, like, this had already been kind of snuffed out a little bit. You know what I mean? Which makes sense, because 490 years previously to 600 B.C. was the, the begin, uh, beginning of some serious wickedness of pagan gods coming in and, and being worshipped, and basically a rejection of Jehovah. Okay? So, the whole idea of, of a Messiah coming to save people from their sins was something that needed to be preached again. It was something that needed to be restored to, to the minds of the people. And it's cool that it makes it makes it a point here that, yeah, not only is Jerusalem going to be destroyed and all this stuff, but more importantly, more importantly, the things that he read in the book, the things that were shared with Lehi, he probably had to be brought to school on this a little bit by the Lord, was that, hey, there's, there's, a, a, plainly man, there's a plain manifestation of the coming of a Messiah. And because of that, there's going to be a redemption of the world. Like, it's incredible, you know? But Satan works so hard to remove that through every generation, so much so that when Christ came, his people, his own people, didn't even recognize him. That's a sobering thought. Uh, verse 20. And when the Jews heard these things, they were angry with him. Imagine that, getting angry about that. Yea, even as with the prophets of old, whom they had cast out and stoned and slain, and they also sought his life, that they might take it away. But behold, I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. Okay? If you go back here, go back to the uh, to the Book of Mormon student manual, we'll see. It explains here, Tender mercies of the Lord. Elder David A. Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles described the tender mercies of the Lord. I testify that the tender mercies of the Lord are real and that they do not occur randomly or merely by coincidence. Often the Lord's timing 
of his tender mercies help us both discern and acknowledge him. The Lord's tender mercies are the very personal and individualized blessings, strength, protection, assurances, guidance, loving kindness, consolation, support, and spiritual gifts which he receive which we excuse me, which we receive from and because of and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly the Lord suits his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. One of the ways whereby the Savior comes to each of us is through his abundant and tender mercies. For instance, as you and I face challenges and tests in our lives, the gift of faith and an appropriate sense of personal confidence that reaches beyond our own capacity are two examples of the tender mercies of the Lord. Repentance and forgiveness of sins and peace of conscience are examples of the tender mercies of the Lord and the persistence and the fortitude that enable us to press forward with cheerfulness through physical limitations and spiritual difficulties are examples of the tender mercies of the Lord. We learn uh, that through the rest of his writings, Nephi is intent on showing us how the Lord will deliver the righteous. Watch for this repeating theme throughout First Nephi. Okay. Really cool insight. When we start to get this insight, when we start to understand the theme here, you know what I mean? It's it's interesting when we when we zoom out, okay? When we zoom out and we say why was the Book of Mormon given to us at the time that it was given to us? And why is it so important that we, as brothers and sisters, that our nation, that the world reads this book? Okay. All we have to do is live the gospel, is accept Christ, do the things, right? Follow the commandments bring ourselves into unity with Christ, which is not an overnight thing. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand. I'm doing it myself. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not perfect. I screw up all the time. You know what I mean? I definitely have need of, of taking the sacrament every week. Um, but those tender mercies exist. Those tender mercies exist, and we as a people are being given these, these, these things, this doctrine. And I see, as I read this stuff, I'm, I'm looking at, at our, our, our own church, at ourselves, at our people, the people of America, or the, the people of Russia, the people of wherever you are, you know what I mean? You can draw these parallels with yourself. And I see people leaving the church. I see people fighting against the church. I see people that are rejecting the hand of deliverance. And I think about Jerusalem. I think about Jerusalem. 
I think about in the impending things that are coming and that we're coming to Jerusalem and that are promised to come upon us as a nation if we don't repent. And I get just that little bit of, of a window into Lehi and, and Jeremiah where as an Ephraimite that's why I'm doing this, right? That's why I'm sacrificing time. That's why I'm, I'm preparing. Like It obviously benefits me spiritually and I, I will endeavor to do this anyway regardless of if I'm sharing it or not. But this is our divine commission brothers and sisters it's not to drift silently through life it's not to go through the motions you have to open your mouth we have to share this stuff we have to make this stuff number one in our life and everything else will follow and fall into place A very interesting fact, brothers and sisters, that I'm going to go into here. I had mentioned the fact that that the kingdom of Judah had basically been re rebellious for 490 years, right? That's an important number. Because every seventh year is what's known as a sabbatical year, right? And during this year, the land was to rest. Okay, You weren't supposed to work the land. Now, obviously, you guys are going to see, if you study, that the number seven, like the seventh day, okay, the seventh year, it, it's one of those things. The Lord had, had commanded them to do certain things on this seventh day, on the seventh year, okay? Those things had not been done for 490 years, and the Lord was warning them. And this warning is the same warning that is given to us. You see, the Lord would have forgiven. He would have forgiven the whole nation. He would have, have, have welcomed them back, and He would have taken those sins, and he would have paid for them, right? As, as the, the Messiah. Because they rejected Christ, because they rejected Jehovah, they were then responsible for 490 years worth of skipping the sabbatical year. Now, I, I, I ask you this question, and if you're a mathematician, you'll figure this out. How long was Judah captive to Babylon? Seventy years. Seventy years. Why is that important? Why am I making a big deal out of that? If you take 490 years and divide it by, by uh, 70, you get 7. Okay? 
every seven years they were supposed to have given a year to God. God allowed Babylon to come in and take them out for 70 years because that was the penance that was owed. 70 years. So for 490 years, they had robbed God of every seventh year, and they had to pay that back themselves to the uttermost farthing. And there was a whole lot of, a whole lot of death, destruction, and uncomfortableness that he would have loved to pardon them from, to save them from. It's not that he himself wanted them to suffer that. You know what I mean? He wanted the opposite. He wanted to save them from that. But because of what they had done, he, his hand was stretched out still, man. But because of what they had done, they refused to take his hand, and they relied on their own power. And because of that, he said, Okay, then I will allow you to pay me back. I will allow you to pay the debt to the uttermost farthing. It's the same for us. I don't want to have to pay the debt back. What happened to the, to the kingdom of, of Judah? Prior to that, penance being, being enacted, and prior to that 70 years worth, during that 70 years worth, is not something I want to experience. I would rather turn my heart to the great Jehovah and accept the atonement of Jesus Christ. I would rather accept the gospel. I would rather accept that I am a flawed man and that I am here to repent and forgive. I'm going to bring that up as we read through the Book of Mormon chapters, brothers and sisters. I'm going to keep reminding us about this 70 years debt that they, they had to pay. Because it's something that we don't think about. It's something that we don't cover a lot. But it's important. And it's there. If we but look. And if we but dig and read. Look forward to these. I'm going to make this a series here. Um, we're going to go through the Book of Mormon. We're going to cross-reference. We're, we're going to use the Bible as well. I'm going to end up doing, in the future, uh, a, a Bible series as well that we go through. And there's so much meat. And this is really, as I thought about what to do when I came back for, the, for the, my returning episode after a, a little siesta, I thought, what do I want to leave my kids? What do I want to leave as, as my testimony to the earth? You know what I mean? And, as always, I want to leave my, my testimony of the prophet, of the prophetic mantle, of the Quorum of the Twelve, and that following the mouthpiece of the Lord is always the strategy to win. There's a lot going on right now, and there's a lot of shade and doubt being thrown on the church and the apostles and the, and the prophet. 
And whenever that happens, I would counsel you to get on your binoculars to create that vignette around everything else except for the prophet and the Quorum of the Twelve. Follow the majority of the Quorum of the Twelve and follow the prophet. That's the best advice that I've ever heard. And it was given by Brigham Young. Okay. That is what I'm going to do. That's what I would counsel you to do. But before I leave this earth, but before I, I go, I want to bring the doctrine. I want to bring, as best as I understand it, and as best as I know it, and as best as I can take it from the good books of themselves, and from the student manuals that help clarify some things, I want to leave that as my testimony. I want to leave that as a strengthening balm to my children, to those who, who knew me and those who do not know me. Some of you only know me through this podcast. This is the stuff of value that I would like to leave. I want to be able to say that I opened my mouth like I hope I did in the pre-existence. I pray for you guys. I pray for my nation that it will find its way back to Christ because I know what's going to happen if it doesn't. And I don't want to see that. I love you guys. I love the gospel. I love Christ. He's my Savior. He's my Redeemer. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.